pray together. Heavenly Father, you're the, the one who has taught us that to have your word and yet to suffer for having it is better than riches and gold. And so we come to your word tonight. We come asking that you would speak to us, that you would help us as we listen to your voice, that you would help us to live lives that honor and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, for we ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen. Well, last week I ended by saying that 1 Thessalonians is going to be a letter, I hope, for us full of encouragement. Full of encouragement. One of the things we need as Christians is encouragement, isn't it? And one of the ways that God encourages us is to give us examples. I'm not going to do this, but if I invited all of you up in alphabetical order uh, to come and stand here and simply say aloud the names of other Christians who have been an example and encouragement to you, I think we'd be here till, well, certainly after midnight, probably till breakfast. Not going to do that this evening, but we do need examples, don't we? No doubt some of you would come up here and you'd mention other people in the room. And that's one of the lovely things about uh, being part of a church family. We need examples. God's given us examples. Even in this room, there are examples for us as we live the Christian life. And I think this is important for the kids to hear tonight. Uh, we can be examples to other Christians, whatever our age and stage. Listen to Paul speaking to Timothy he says, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech and conduct and love and faith and in purity. What's true individually is true corporately. The church in Thessalonica, it was a young church. But as I've started to look at this church, get to know these people a little bit as best as you can, I found them really encouraging. I think this church in Thessalonica, I think it's a church for us to emulate. Church for us to emulate. That's my title tonight. And to help us get into this chapter, I've got two big headings. The first point is the longest by quite a while. And it's this. Here's the first point tonight. What Paul saw. What Paul saw. And if you weren't here last Sunday, you missed a trip to the maternity ward. As we uh, looked at Acts chapter 17, as we saw the birth of this church, we saw that Paul's reasonable gospel, it was met with a really unreasonable response. As he preached in the synagogue, as he spoke from the Old Testament scriptures about Jesus, some people were persuaded but other people started to persecute. And this led Paul to flee to another town, share the gospel there. The same thing happened. And Luke tells us that some of the, the Jews in Thessalonica, they began to stir up trouble in that region in Berea. This led Paul to travel to Athens, the rest of Acts chapter 17, then on to Corinth in Acts chapter 18. And it's probably during his 18 months in Corinth when he had a bit of breathing space, 
that Paul wrote this first letter, 1 Thessalonians. One of the things we're going to see in the first three chapters is the deep love that Paul has for these believers. The time he had with them had been really short, and yet they'd suffered incredible affliction together. And that affliction, that affliction had created a deep affection for them, for them, for one another. I think it's what happens so often, isn't it? Some of the people that mean the most to us as Christians, they are people that we've gone through trials with. And maybe we don't see them anymore. Maybe we uh, have moved away from the city that we lived in when we knew them. But the bonds, the bonds are deep. And the bonds between Paul and this church were really deep. We're going to see that. And what Paul's doing here in this chapter, really, he's reminiscing. He's remembering them. He's remembering them before God. It's a lovely thing for us to do. It's a lovely thing to to pray for somebody and then tell them what we've been praying for them. Tell them what we see in them. Tell them what we can see God is doing in them. And I think there are two things that Paul sees in this church that I want us to look at tonight. The first thing Paul sees is evidence of God's work, evidence of God's work. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning in our prayers, remembering you before our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the first mention in the New Testament of this beautiful little uh, set of triplets, faith, hope, and love. And for Paul, these three things, these three qualities, they became a kind of hallmark of real Christianity, faith, hope, and love. Now, if you, until recently, if you bought something in a shop, if it was cereal or jam or mayonnaise, which is a big hit in our house, mayonnaise, you would see on the side of it, by appointment to Her Majesty the Queen. And I guess that'll change now meant the product came with uh, her approval. It was good enough to have on the table in Buckingham Palace. It had a kind of stamp of approval. And in a sense, these three qualities, faith, hope, and love, they're a bit like that. When we see them, when we see them, we know we're looking at genuine Christianity. I wonder if you can see how earthy these three qualities are. They're not just three nice ideas. No, Paul says each of them is connected to something else. Their faith, he says, is seen in the work they've done. This could be good works or the kind of hard, honest work he's going to talk about later in the letter. Paul says they've labored in love. That word means bother, trouble, difficulty. They've kept going with other people even when uh, the relationships have been challenging. And their hope as Christians has been persistent, steadfast. You know, sometimes a book or a ministry or a speaker or something like that suddenly appears in the Christian world and everyone is talking about them. Maybe they come and they bring new ideas, new teaching. 
They draw a big crowd, have a big audience. How do we know what a genuine Christian is? How do we know what a genuine move of God is like? Well, I think this grid, faith, hope, and love, I think it's a really good test for us. Does this speaker, does this church, does this ministry, does it promote these things? Do the people involved, do they model these qualities? Or is it just a whole load of noise? Is it just all about them? Paul wants his friends, Paul wants them to know that God has been at work among them. One of the things I love is uh, the way that he weaves encouragement into these verses. Maybe you can see this. Look at how they're described by Paul in verse 4. They are loved by God. They're chosen by God. If you're a Christian this evening, that's a description of you. Loved, chosen. But can you see the evidence of this choice? What was the sign that God really had chosen these people, really loved them? The evidence, Paul says, was that the gospel came to them not only in word, verse 5, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. Now, what does, what does that mean, something, a gospel coming in, the power, in power in the Holy Spirit? Well, notice what isn't said. Paul doesn't say, when I came to you, the evidence there was a real work of God going on was that there was loads and loads of miracles. Paul doesn't say that. That's what some people think a real work of God will be like. There'll be lots of miracles, lots of signs and wonders. The text, Acts 17, is totally silent about that. Things aren't mentioned in that passage. Instead, we see people hearing a series of Old Testament sermons. And then putting their trust in Jesus. As Paul spoke about the Lord, as he spoke from the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit opened the eyes of these people. And we need to realize, friends, tonight, that that is, that is a miracle. It wasn't just talk when Paul met them and spoke to them. It wasn't just interesting. It wasn't just words. No, the Holy Spirit who inspired those words, inspired the scriptures, accompanied Paul's preaching and brought new life. I think that's something for us to pray for, to pray for our church, to pray for other churches that we know. Preaching is not simply, it is not this, it's not simply the transfer of information. Preaching is not just what I've got written down here, going from here into your heads and then being forgotten. No, it's so much more than that. The word conviction, can you see that word in verse 5? The word conviction means assurance, certainty. So what's Paul saying? He's saying, as I preached to you, as I talked to you about Jesus, you knew, you could sense deep within What this man is saying is true. What this man is saying is true. The Holy Spirit was at work in them. That's something to pray would happen in our church, in every church we know. There's a second thing here. 
There's a second thing Paul saw. Paul didn't just see God's work. Paul saw his own reflection. Paul saw his own reflection. We've got someone in our house who loves to try and destroy the mirror in our bedroom. His name begins with M. And he gets, he gets so excited when he sees himself in the mirror. It's a good thing that we're not superstitious and worried about uh, mirrors breaking. He hammers it. He is, he is over the moon to see himself in that mirror. And Paul is just as pleased to see his own reflection here, isn't he? At the end of verse 5, he says, You know what kind of men we were, and you became imitators of us. And yet, what did that imitation, what did that imitation look like? It didn't mean that they all uh, dressed like Paul or they had to have the, the same personality as Paul or talk in the same accent as Paul or anything like that. No, Paul tells us they received God's word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. It's often said that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. We're shaped by people we've spent time with. But maybe if you're new to Christianity, maybe you hear this talk of imitating uh, Paul, maybe you find that troubling. What we need to understand this evening is that Paul had a unique role. He was an apostle. He was hand-chosen by Jesus in Acts 9. He was called to suffer for the gospel. We also need to remember that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he will say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He actually says this, doesn't he? In verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Paul is not some minister with an ego trip. Paul is not a narcissist. Paul is not so insecure that he needs people to tell him he's great. No, elsewhere, Paul will say, I am the chief of sinners. And so though he said, I said he saw his reflection, what did he really see? He saw Christ's reflection in these people. He saw believers, he was writing to his friends who whose lives were marked by, I think, two things we often think of as opposites. Affliction, experiencing affliction, and experiencing joy at the same time. Those are two things, aren't they, that marked the life of Jesus. The book of Hebrews tells us it was for, what was it? It was for the joy that was set before him, that Jesus endured the cross. The pattern of his life is to be the pattern of our life. These are the things Paul saw in these believers. Paul saw evidence of God's work, and Paul saw his own reflection. And one of the privileges that I have, Andy has, the elders in this church have, is to know what some of you are going through and yet to still see you here every week. To still see lives of faith and hope and love. To, to still see people receiving God's word with joy, even when they're struggling. 
We don't tend to talk about that kind of thing very often because we're British. And I am already feeling the pressure to rush on to my second point. But you are, you are a great encouragement to us. We often find ourselves thanking God for you. And so let's pray that God would continue to help us to be more like this, more and more and more, that these things would, would become more true of us, faith, hope, love, joy in the midst of affliction, receiving God's word like these people received it. That's what Paul saw. What Paul saw, but there's a second thing. What everyone said. What everyone said. Now, certain churches are known for certain things, aren't they? It'd be interesting to know what people say about us. Sometimes people will say, you know, Church A, they're really big on the Bible. Church B, they're really big on the Holy Spirit. Church C, they're really big on reaching the community. What would people say about us? And what were people saying about this church? Well, look at what this church was known for. Paul calls them an example in verse 7. And he says they became people that other churches wanted to imitate. And he says that the word of God, it sounded forth from them. And you see that in verse 8? The word he uses is the, the word we use uh, to say the word echo. The word of God, it reverberated out from this church. It rang out from this church. Everyone knew about this church. Paul says that their faith has gone everywhere. He doesn't need to say anything about this church anymore. One author compares what has, was happening amongst these Christians as being like a wildfire. The news, we might say, of these people, it went viral. And sometimes we finally meet someone and we say, I've heard all about you. Or sometimes people say, for good or bad reason, his reputation precedes him. And this church, it was like that. They didn't need Paul to speak on their behalf. Instead, others had heard all about them. Others had got talking. I think collectively their ears must have been read. But notice what they noticed. Notice what other people said about them, verse 9. People knew that the gospel, Paul's gospel, had come to this city. They rec they'd recognized that message. They'd received it. What was the sign of this? What had happened to these people? I think there's two things again. These people were people who had changed and this church was full of people who knew that they were safe. People who had changed and people who knew they were safe. Firstly, they'd changed. They'd turned to God from idols, Paul said, to serve the living and true God. This is what becoming a Christian looks like, isn't it? We were going one way. We had our backs to God. But he worked in us. He changed us. He helped us to say no to idols. We say yes to God instead. Now, kids, I wonder uh, what you think of when you hear the word idol. You tend to think of a little statue, don't we, or um, something people make and have in their homes. 
But the grown-ups here tonight, they would tell you that idols can come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. And when we make something an idol, what are we doing? We're saying this thing, this person, whatever it is, this is the most important thing in my life. This can, this can cause all sorts of problems. And you and I, we live in a world full of idols. There are lots of things that God gives us that we can idolize. Some of them are really good things. Some of them are things that can do terrible damage to us. But God made all of us. God made us, whoever we are, whatever our age, to worship him. He's the true, he's the living God. He's not a false God. He's not a dead God. And so tonight, whether our idol is money or sex or power or success or controlling people or ourselves, we are called to turn away from that idol. And it may be that there are times when we are tempted to run back to that idol. That idol will never give us the joy it promises. If you're a Christian tonight, you what was true of these Christians in Thessalonica, it's true of you. You have been changed. You've been changed. You're a new creation. There's a second thing. Not only were these Christians changed, they were people who knew that they were safe. These are people who knew that they were safe. What do I mean by that? Well, I want you to look with me. I want you to look at the last five words of this chapter. Can you see them? Look at those last five words. From the wrath to come. I want you to think about what those last five words, what do they do to this chapter? I think they add a note of seriousness, don't they, to this chapter, a note of sobriety. It's a really happy, joyful chapter. I want you to imagine if they were not in the text. If they were not in the text, this would just be a a lovely description of how great this church was. And yet I think the last five words, what do they do? They add bite. They add They show us reality. The wrath of God is coming. And the wrath of God, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is something that Paul speaks about quite a lot in both of his letters to this church. Listen to how he puts it in the first chapter of 2 Thessalonians. He says, Justice will be done when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. And listen to what he says next, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is, that is core, basic Christian teaching. And there is absolutely no gospel without it. Friends, tonight we need to know, if we're Christians, we need to know what we've been saved from. One day Jesus Christ will return in person. He will put everything right. He will appear in glory. 
He will judge the living and the dead. One day all wickedness will come to an end. This is core Christianity. See, just think, think how patient God has been. Think how much God has been blasphemed and mocked and dishonored by a world that owes God everything. Think about the need we have for a day of judgment, a day when wrongs and everything will be put right. We need that day. We should thank God that it will come. We should thank God that evil and sin and all that destroys and kills, all of that will not reign forever. Maybe when we hear of God's wrath, we think we can be tempted to think it won't really happen or we want to ignore it or maybe others of us feel afraid of that or we're worried about loved ones. Well, who are we to look to tonight? And who are we to point them to? Well, look what Paul says back in 1 Thessalonians 1, Jesus. The one who will come as judge, the one who will come as judge is the one who was judged for us, the one who died for our sins. It's just like, it's just like the Passover. You and I as Christians, what do we do? We shelter under blood shelter under the blood of the Lamb. So I want you to turn with me, turn to the last chapter of First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 5, and listen to these words from verses, five, verses uh, sorry, 8 and 9. I think you'll spot the reference to things we spoke about earlier. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, Paul says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of, here's our trio, faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. And then listen, listen to this, listen to this next verse if you're a Christian tonight. For God has not... God has not destined us for wrath. God has not destined us for wrath, if we're a Christian this evening. God has not destined you for wrath. But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, that is your destiny tonight if you're a Christian. Sometimes we can think, I've messed up. I'm not a very good Christian. God can't really save me anymore. Sometimes we think, on that final day, I'm just going to be found out. No. Do you see how this whole chapter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, it's full of references to the past, the present, and the future? Paul talks about a past work of God. He talks about present faithfulness of these people, evidence that God's at work in them. And then he talks about a future rescue. It's the same with what Jesus did. When he came, what did he die for? 
Jesus died for our sins, and he died for our past, present, current sins, and our future sins. And this evening, if you even, if you have even the weakest trust in him, if you feel like you are hanging on to him by your fingernails, then you need to know that you're safe. If you've never put your trust in him, well, this evening you need to ask him to be your place of shelter. The wrath of God will come. The wrath of God will come and it will be like nothing this world has ever seen. But we can have confidence. Look what Paul says again. Jesus, who delivers us, from the wrath to come. He will hold us in the middle of that wrath. Jesus will carry us through that wrath. Jesus will not let go of you as that wrath comes. It's often said, isn't it, the safest place to be in a storm. Where is the safest place in a storm? Right in the center of the storm. The eye of the storm. It's true with God. True with his wrath. When we know it's coming. The safest place. The safest thing to do. Is to run to him. Run to God. Ask him to hold on to us. Have confidence tonight. Know that you are safe. If you're looking to him. Run to him. Ask him to hide you in him. And put your trust in him tonight. Well, let's pray. Let's pray. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Heavenly Father, how we thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you this evening for what you've saved us from. And we thank you for knitting us together as your people. We thank you for bringing us into your family. Thank you for the joy of serving you and knowing you and being in a relationship with you and being in a relationship with one another. Help us as a church. We pray that this letter would encourage us, that it would help us to live the kind of lives you want us to live. And that we would bring glory to you as we wait, as we look, as we long for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. We ask it all in his name and for his sake. Amen.